When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. It defies belief that somehow Republicans in the Senate are reluctant to either review Russian tactics or ignore them. They have no idea if it's Russia or China or somebody. It could be somebody sitting in a bed someplace. The facts are stubborn things. They did hack into this campaign. I'm somebody that gets it. And nobody really knows it. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the president-elect who keeps referring to himself in the third person, Donald Trump. I'm Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent, stepping in for today's show. One of the most striking things about Donald Trump's roster for the federal government is its tight connections to the world of Wall Street and the financial industry. All of this, despite the fact that Trump promised his voters he would clean the swamp, he would drain Washington, D.C. of lobbyists and bankers and the people that he accused of harming the American people. As a candidate, Trump slammed Ted Cruz in the Republican primary and later Hillary Clinton in the general election for these ties to Wall Street banks. As president, however, he promises to massively deregulate the financial sector. So, for example... His pick for the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, is a billionaire private equity investor. His choice for the Security and Exchange Commission is Jay Clayton, a Wall Street lawyer who works for Goldman Sachs, among others. And his pick for the Department of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, a hedge fund manager who, when he was working in the industry, was responsible for thousands of foreclosures after the 2008 financial crisis. If all of this sounds a bit like a con... That's because it is. To talk about Trump's economic team and Steve Mnuchin in particular, we have Jesse Eisinger, a Pulitzer Prize-winning senior reporter at ProPublica who is known for its reporting on the questionable Wall Street practices that contributed to the nation's economic meltdown. Jesse, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks so much for having me. My first question, and I sort of got to this at the beginning um, of this episode is the character of Donald Trump's economic team. Uh, He ran on a message of uh, draining the swamp, of getting Wall Street out of Washington, but it seems that his economic team is basically built completely from uh, Wall Street figures and figures tied to the financial industry. So could you provide a little more detail about that? Yeah, I I think that's almost completely right, Um, and the hypocrisy is uh, tremendous here. I I sort of think of them in four categories, and they're kind of overlapping at at the uh, expense of being a little cutesy. I sort of think of them as the four C's. It's (laughs) basically cronies, cranks, conservatives, 
and corporatists. And, you know, you can see this sort of overlap, but you've got somebody like Steve Mnuchin, who is not particularly someone identified with any policy views. Um, he was a hedge fund manager and an investment banker for Goldman Sachs. Mostly what he's known for is being a, a Trump loyalist. And what his policies are going to be, what he's going to advocate are fairly hard to discern. But what you can expect is a kind of friendly to Wall Street, friendly to the banking uh, industry type of policies, friendly to corporations. And uh, he's probably going to be deregulatory in you know, putting, advocating deregulatory policies and lowering taxes. And you can sort of see that across the board. But then you've got a couple of other people who might be sort of unorthodox on trade. And then you've got this other wrinkle that's going to be very hard to predict. So Mnuchin, I guess, would fall under the, the cronies in your four C's here. Yeah, exactly. I sort of think of him as the crony. Um, I would say that, you know, Rex Tillerson is not an economic advisor, but his potential nominee for Secretary of State is kind of the corporatist. You've got Gary Cohn, um, who's going to be the is going to be the head of the National Economic Council. I think of him also as a kind of corporatist. And then you've got guys like Larry Kudlow potentially as the uh, Council of Economic Advisors head. He's really a kind of supply side crank. And then you've got Peter Navarro as his kind of trade advisor, a really deeply unorthodox guy on trade who uh, quite crankish views on trade. Um, and, you know, how all of this kind of meshes and where this goes is a little bit hard to predict. So to zero in on Mnuchin a little bit, um, what I know about his history is that he uh, bought out a failing California bank uh, called IndyMac in 2008 He, as a hedge fund manager. Uh, he renamed it or the fund renamed it OneWest. And then under his ownership, uh, OneWest foreclosed on, on thousands of families. And I know you've written about this for ProPublica uh, in a piece titled Trump's Treasury Pick Excelled at Kicking Elderly People Out of Their Homes, um, co-authored with Paul Keel. Yeah. So um, so exactly what happens is IndyMac fails um, and is taken over by the uh, FDIC um, in the financial crisis. And then the FDIC looks around for a bunch of buyers. Nobody particularly wants to buy it. And um, Mnuchin puts together an investment team to take it out of government's hands. Um, and they get a pretty good deal on it. And they rename it, rebrand it. And then it's called One West. And One West has a huge portfolio of reverse mortgages that it built up in the um, in sort of the housing boom. Reverse mortgages are a product that most regulators have deep concerns about. It's a, it's a highly exploitative product often because you're taking elderly people um, and allowing them to monetize the equity of their homes, uh, take the equity out of their homes in exchange for cash. But in fact, what you're doing is you're borrowing. It's like a home equity line of credit where you're not actually paying any monthly payments. And the actual fees um, are not particularly transparent. So it ends up being a very costly product um, and an exploitative product. So uh, this was a real albatross for One West. Um, One West seems to have wanted to get out of it as quickly as possible. So they were foreclosing on people in a very aggressive way. And 
Paul Keel and I talk to advocates and uh, homeowners across the country, and um, One West particularly stood out for how aggressive it was. And not only was it aggressive, but it was taking leeway with the rules. So um, at one point, uh, other people reported on this case, and a case in Florida where a woman had missed 27 cents on her payments and was uh, being foreclosed on by One West. Uh, and we wrote about a guy who One West foreclosed on him for not living in his home. You have to occupy the home. And they uh, accused him of not occupying the home. And when they served him the papers to give him notice that they were foreclosing on his home, they served him at the home. <laughs> they found him at the home and they served him the papers there. Uh, you know, this kind of totally uh, Kafka-esque nightmare for this guy, an elderly um, Korean gentleman who uh, didn't speak very good English and got caught in this and finally was uh, able to def- beat this effort back. But One West was doing this all over the country. Wow, that is um, aggressive seems like it actually sort of a it downplays the extent to which that is terrible that is frankly yeah uh heartless um and uh, <laughs> trying to find appropriate words to, to say for it you know on a on a family podcast um <laughs> but no that that sounds that sounds like the kind of behavior that you would not in fact want to see from someone uh nominated to to head up the treasury and so given that he has been nominated to head up the treasury what do you think you know what do you think Americans can expect if he's confirmed from his treasury. I, I know I've read that Mnuchin uh, intends to basically privatize Freddie and Fannie, uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, two of the largest players in the home mortgage market. Yes. Well, this gets to a kind of crony aspect of what you may expect from his policies. And as I say, the sort of larger policy contours are a little bit hard to predict because Mnuchin himself doesn't seem to have any um, explicit policy preferences or or views. He's talked about lowering taxes, um, which I think we can expect. That's a kind of straight line conservative um, uh, orthodoxy that the Congress is going to be happy to do. And then you get this weird thing about uh, the GSEs, Fannie and Freddie, the government-sponsored entities. Um, and where this comes in is that A few of Trump's major early supporters, um, big money supporters, were hedge fund managers who, or you know, money managers who had positions in the uh, GSEs, in Fannie and Freddie, including John Paulson, the hedge fund manager, and Bruce Berkowitz at uh, Fairholme, Um, and a couple others. And what they, these guys, have wanted for a long time is for the government to reprivatize. Fannie and Freddie. The government took over Fannie and Freddie under uh, the Bush administration, the late days of the Bush administration. Hank Paulson, uh, as Treasury Secretary, did this, and they put them into this quasi-bizarre stasis. So they didn't purely nationalize them, but they put them into conservatorship. They were quasi-public-private entities. So they've been backed by the government, but they were publicly traded companies for-profit entities. Then they get absorbed by the the government and these hedge fund managers have speculated that they would be very profitable as publicly traded entities again and have advocated and paid lobbyists to try to push for them to be reprivatized. This has actually been opposed by Republicans and 
like uh, Bob Corker, the senator, and by the big banks funding Republican politicians mostly, mainly because the big banks want the mortgage business. Um, But now you've got a Republican president, Trump, and Steve Mnuchin, his Treasury Secretary, who are pushing this. And it seems like this kind of, there isn't a policy that's backing this or an underlying policy consideration for this. It's simply to allow these hedge fund managers to make money on this. Now, I should add that Trump has an investment, it appears, we don't know for sure, in John Paulson's hedge funds. And so Trump actually seems to be benefiting from uh, any GSE privatization that Steve Mnuchin and his administration will push. That's remarkable. And it's sort of one of the reasons why it probably was good for us to have had uh, Trump's tax returns during the campaign, but that ship seems to have sailed. One thing I wanted to ask about with regards to Fannie and Freddie is it sounds like what you're describing is a situation in which they would still have that kind of implicit government guarantee, right? That that the loss, any losses they incurred would basically be socialized to the public. Yes, exact. That's exactly right, and that is why it's such a an abomination of a public policy if we actually if it actually comes to pass. Um, the problem with the GSEs was this hybrid model where they were for-profit entities that uh, privatized their profits, and then um, when they ran into trouble, the taxpayers had to uh, bail them out, so they socialized their losses. And now they are extraordinarily profitable. Um, the bailout of the GSEs turns out to be very profitable because the profits are getting swept into the treasury, into the government. So the government is making a lot of money on this, and almost the entire mortgage market is now backed by Fannie and Freddie. It's still roughly 80, 90% of all mortgages that are being backed by the government. If they were reprivatized, the government would never be able to get out of that business. We would still be either implicitly or explicitly on the hook for all of these mortgages. The housing market is so important and so vital for the functioning of our economy and the and the wealth of individual citizens that the government could never realistically be not on the hook. And so if we were to release these two companies into the wild again in their their present form, taxpayers, again, would be on the hook for any potential losses. It would just be a terrible policy. Um, and there are various arguments and, and proposals to try to remedy this problem, um, Democratic and Republican proposals, all from sort of getting rid of Fannie and Freddie entirely, um, which Republicans would like, and um, so that the banks could take this over, to democratic policies where you have smaller entities doing this. Though the one thing that's not discussed, which I think would be a pretty t- particularly good idea, is to have this com- be completely nationalized. So this is a government function. You get the profit motive entirely out of it. And then the government uh, has socialized the profits and the losses if there are any, um, and it's a social good to push housing. So that's, of course, not on the table. Uh, It wasn't under the table under a Democratic administration, and it's certainly not going to be on the table under Trump. But it is a very interesting idea now that you've mentioned it, because I've never heard the idea of a a socialized mortgage market, or at least socialized um, mortgage lenders under the federal government. And so I'm going to look into that myself, because that's very interesting. 
I have one last question, and that is, uh, so Mnuchin will be, will have his confirmation hearing relatively soon, I think next week, and if not next week, then shortly thereafter. What do you think senators should ask him? Um, what should we, what should they be trying to uncover for public knowledge? Um, what what issues or concerns um, are really critical in this period so that even if he does get confirmed, we at least have a public record from him of what he's been up to? Well, um, the uh, the Sir Advocate's progressive movement is trying to make a stand based on his record, uh, his business record. And um, David Dion at The Intercept had a very interesting story revealing that there was an entirely other type of um, fraud aside from the reverse mortgage uh, behavior at One West having to do with sort of the classic problems of foreclosure abuses with uh, backdating documents, the kind of fraudulent behavior that a lot of the banks did, but One West was really in the thick of it. That, I think, deserves more scrutiny. There is a HUD investigation of One West that's gotten almost no attention, just a little bit of attention, where there was an accounting fraud on the government that CIT, which took over One West, had to pay $230 million, restate its earnings by $230 million, essentially a defrauding of the government. Um, in a complicated scheme that I won't get into now, but um, that is worth asking about. And then, of course, the future. The Treasury has an enormous impact, not only on, mainly on sort of banking policy. So what we really want to know is a kind of where the future of Wall Street regulation is going to be. And what we're going to see is, uh, I think, a dismantling of the post-financial crisis regulatory uh, regime um, that's going to be very dangerous. They have paid lip service, ironically. The Republican platform calls for breaking up the banks and re- reinstatement of Glass-Steagall. That's just been essentially completely jettisoned. Um, and Mnuchin, I doubt, advocates any of that. If they did, um, and I again, I want to emphasize that I'm enormously skeptical, that actually <laughs> might be a good thing. I uh, think that probably would be salutary, but uh, I don't think, I think that was just a kind of he- populist head fake in the platform. I've been talking to ProPublica's Jesse Eisinger. Jesse, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Jacob Weisberg is the head honcho of this whole operation. I'm Jamel Bowie. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.